There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. My guest today is Jonathan Moody. Now, he's the founder and CEO of Physio Inc., INQ. And it's a physiotherapy business that takes people through simple changes to refine movement that have profound effects on their athletic performance and, more importantly, their pain relief. Physio Inc. started as a bricks and mortar clinic in 2006 in Western Sydney. And the business now has 14 clinics and 300 staff across Australia with a new arm of mobile and in-home care for disability and aged care. PhysioInc's philosophy is that your body is your most important asset, which I agree with 100%. And each part of the movement system impacts the rest of your body. They examine the entire system, measure its changes to offer preventative therapies to help respond to injuries. In the last year, PhysioInc's commitment to their clients went into overdrive and the business looked at telehealth offerings and how they could use technology not just as an alternative, but as potentially a superior option to face-to-face treatments. I'm going to ask Jonathan how the business was leveraged through technology and its offering, how he continually pushes for improvement, what's the importance of his distribution strategy, like franchises within an office or alternatively mobile, you know, what are the various franchise distributions, what's his product and services look like, how does he develop his product lines, and why the relationship between different sciences, which basically represent his product, is so important for his business. So let's get into it. Jonathan Moody, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, great. This is a, a business called Physio INQ. That's Inc? It's Inc, yeah. But it's sort of not Inc. It's about inquiring or something. What's the plan of the words? Uh, look, when I was going to go register INC, I think I uh, was unable to, so I threw a queue on the end instead. In Australia, you can't, correct? Yeah, so, because uh, they, cause it means incorporated and we can't, don't have that concept here. And my little bloke at the, at the time was going to a... Uh, to a childcare called Thinkers Inc. And I thought, look, that's that's pretty good. So uh, I thought it might have been a, I thought it might have been a, a play on um, inquiry, sort of like asking questions and uh, being scientific. Well, Maybe well, I thought bad too much. Well, it's it, it's actually funny. The the biggest search term in Australia for physio is physio in a suburb, and so I wanted Inc. because I knew that Google would just read it as physio in, and right. then you throw the suburb on the end of it, and it would improve my organic ranking. Yeah, so yeah. it was. Did it, it work? It did. <laughs> Well, let's just talk about, I was just reading the brief earlier and it says you're born in Adelaide and uh, your RAAF family moved to Idaho. Yeah. It sounds a bit unusual. Um, yeah. Take me back a bit. Go, go back and tell me what's the story about yeah, your so family. Where'd you grow up? Born in Gawler, which is just outside the Brossa. Um, don't know Adelaide you know, very well in terms of growing up. You uh, never lived there really? Not really. No. Shifted over to Idaho. 
lived there for a few years. Uh, my sister started her school there. My brother was young and I was also young. Came back to Australia when I was around about four years of age um, to Canberra. Was your dad so a pilot or? He was an aeronautical that? engineer, yeah. yeah. So went to Mountain Home in Idaho, so really, you know, backwater USA and, uh, you know, Bible Belt, you know, God-fearing land, like just an incredible place and a place that I've only discovered a lot more since being an adult um, and I absolutely adore, you know, uh, backcountry USA now. Like, it's, uh, How long did you live there for? Only three years. How, how old were you? Do you mind me asking? I was, I was about one and a half till four. Okay, yeah. so you probably don't have a... A great memory of it then, but like a little bit maybe. Yeah, but just just have, have relived it as an adult, really. Like, they have relived it as an adult. Yeah. So in terms of, my folks moved back there when in two thousand um, and lived there for around twelve years. Right. Uh, they they moved to uh, uh, St. Louis in um, Missouri, and then they shifted to to Seattle. And so in that time, it was all about going back to, you know, where we were, heading back to Mountain Home, getting back to Boise, seeing all the old friends in Colorado and and whatnot, and. I just, I just got a love affair with the States because I, I saw a different side of it that you don't see in the newspapers here, you don't see on telly. It's people that are just so warming and genuine um, that, you know, it was just a different world. So I just want to get, you're born in Adelaide, you went to, you see, you went to Idaho for a couple of years, um, you played rugby. I mean, that's, you, how, I don't understand, how did you play? You, you went to Canberra. Yeah, we moved, moved to Canberra after that. And, you know, the Canberra that I remember is, I have to admit, is a lot different to the Canberra is now. But I think generally probably society is a lot different. You know, I remember living on a street where uh, it was, you know, really middle class Canberra, you know, where the kids would go down to the park and every single afternoon would either play cricket or play rugby. Uh, you know, we'd make our own way home on public transport. Uh, you know, it was that classic upbringing of, you know, the heading down and the local kids would all get a game of footy together. You know, it was just really classic Canberra. I mean, I, I didn't grow up in Sydney, but I imagine, you know, you're growing same. up in the same thing. Did you go to St. Edmunds? Went to Marist. Marist, Marist Brothers, Brothers. Yeah, yeah. I thought you must have one of the Catholic schools. Yeah. And you played rugby down there. Played rugby down there. Yeah, because yeah. rugby is a big game down there. I mean, well, Ricky Stewart played, uh, he kicked off as a rugby union player down Pretty there. Pretty much all the good late 80s rugby league players yeah, were all rugby. Were, he, <laughs> I think he was at St. Edmunds, actually. He was, um, yeah. Yeah, and um, there were, and they all sort of centred around a couple of the Catholic schools down there, and they produced a lot of good footballers. And that, I mean, that was an era, the Ricky Stewart era was an era um, for Canberra, as, as a maybe they've got a new era coming, but as an era for uh, in terms of rugby league, um, Canberra was a great place. I don't know what it's like now, but then I used to go down there a fair bit. It was a it was a great a great community. People were a great. We used to go down to Seaford Oval down in Queanbeyan and watch the rugby league games. My mum was a minor sponsor of you know, Canberra Raiders with her fabric and haberdashery shop. And so we would have some of the Raiders, boys like Clyde and, uh, you know, and Lazarus come in with their wives to buy sewing machines and, and, and you know, fabric and stuff to my mum's, uh, you know, craft shop. And so we, there was a real connection to those players. I remember like Glenn Lazarus used to live down the road from us. My old man would bail him up all the time at the shops and tell him how to play on the weekend. And, you know, and so there was that real, like, connection with people that were your heroes at the same time. Yeah. And, and what's interesting, we're talking about players here who, and you, I see on the brief that you also injured your neck playing footy and uh, and then you're in the physio business. Um, and I, I actually, you know, I've done a bit of sport myself and I, I, I've sustained injuries and not, that whole... Having the ability to understand what's best for our own body as opposed to overdoing it, overworking it or going about things the wrong way, not listening to our own body or and being aware of the signs or not being treated properly or not mm. doing a full treatment process. 
mean, how much of that do you think is part of what motivated you to get into what you're doing now? At to be brutally honest, almost zero. Mine was just purely uh, wanting to stay around the same identity that I had at the time playing rugby. I, I played rugby to a decent level, made at Aussie 16s, and I, I hurt my neck playing against New South Wales um, in the lead up to heading over to New Zealand. And my entire identity. When you say you hurt your neck, what, what actually did you do? So I, it's called a sub, yeah, it's a subluxation, so it's like a yeah. dislocation. I mm-hmm. didn't break it. Um, breaking it is often better to do because the bones heal well, but in a subluxation or a dis- dislocation scenario, the two bones shift and the cartilage becomes damaged. So it doesn't heal very well. Um, so Because there's not enough blood to get getting around the cartilage. Correct, yeah. yeah. And so coming back, you know, at, it was crazy. I played on at the time and kind of put my head in traction. I just held my held my head up and tried to take the pressure off it. And, but every time I'd go to a scrum and my head would fall forward, the pain would go away in my arms. And so, so I just kept trying to get into as many rucks as humanly possible. So my head would fall down. Next day, uh, you know, my arms and legs yeah, didn't, didn't. Yeah, I was buggered. Um, saw physio. Uh, didn't get any scans. Went to New Zealand. Played the last probably twenty minutes of of the game against uh, the Kiwis. We got absolutely belted, <laughs> 66-7 or something like that. Like it was a shellacking. But got some game time, which was, you know, which was great. And uh, but then went back to preseason footy in, uh, you know, year 12. And I just remember the first time I hit a hit shield, I was like, oh, something's not right. Like, you know, it just felt like my head was going to fall off. And uh, went and saw the sports doc and um, had the MRI done and the you know, recommendation was just to not play again. And after that, you know, that void happens where you – you know, I was I was a reasonably studious kid, like I was good at good at school, but um, you know, I was wanting to, you know, be the be the next, you know, dentist, doctor or lawyer or physio that played for the Wallabies, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was it was gonna be that, you know, kind that's of story, cliched yeah. story. And uh when that void happened, I was like, How do I stick around the game? Got into physio, then realized that uh it just wasn't the same. You know, it wasn't the same. Yeah, hanging around it wasn't the same as being. Well, can you, know, you explain that though? Do you, do, you, do you mind explaining what do you mean by well, being where, part of it? I mean, what, what was what was yeah, the so attraction? Leadership. I think it was what I loved about playing rugby. Them giving you leadership, or so or me. Uh, you learning about it or what? Learning about leadership by you know leading by example, leading from the front. You know, letting your actions speak louder than your words. Having you know a bunch of your mates turn up to the gym at six o'clock in the morning because you're going to be there. You know, it was, it was around that influence through um, leading by example. And when, but then when you're on the periphery, you end up being a bit of a, you know. Observer. Yeah, observer and a servant. Hey, mate, I need, you know, <laughs> I yeah, need totally. this done and that done. And so the leadership bit uh, wasn't present. And I didn't get into sports physio um, that much at all, to be honest, because from an early stage I realised that it just wasn't for me. I actually got into refereeing. Um, and uh, loved refing for a while, but I didn't really fit in with the refereeing um, crowd. Uh, you know, I, I liked getting on the views of players probably too much. Um, and uh, it was more my style to, to you know, be a, you know, a, a, a friend and an acquaintance of the players rather than be that. You well, know. you've got to remain aloof, I guess, if you're yeah. a referee. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the referees all hang together, I guess, do they? They do, yeah. yeah. So they're all, they'll be hanging out and I'd be off, you know, drinking out of a boot with the boys. Yeah, and, yeah. And it, was, it wasn't a good look. It wasn't a good look. Yeah. Yeah, yeah have, another, have another beer, Jonathan. <laughs> so make sure you ignore that uh, That's right. there tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so I'm actually quite fascinated by the concept of, you know, a stable young man 
I can understand if somebody's unstable and they're looking for fellowship and camaraderie and things mm-hmm. like that, um, you know, amongst the, the, the group, they might have a bad home situation or something like that. But like a stable young man who comes from a good family, identifying early that you wanted to be part of the momentum of, of a team. Like my goal was actually to, to like, was it, pretty do, early on, I wanted to lead the Was Wallabies. it because you were disappointed and you were just trying to patch it up or was it because you were um, thought, no, no, okay, I, I, I'm past that now. I can't be a, in the Wallaby side. I can't be the only you know, medical yeah. practitioner in the Wallaby side or whatever's gonna, whatever the dream was, but um, therefore I just want to – Still want to hang around because I just like the, yeah, was, the smell was, of the, the locker room. It was part. It was part of the grieving process, I think. You know, and it sounds silly that it's grieving, but it, no, any, no, it's, any any sort of loss that you have, you, you grieve. No, you get traumatized by that sort of yeah. stuff, especially as a young man. If it's your dream got smashed, 100%. and I, I I went off the rails at uni, like you know, I hand on heart, I don't think I attended a lecture for the first two years. Like you know, of the profession that now I totally um, you know represent, and I'm very very uh, fond of it. Um, I, because my, my identity had been changed so much that I didn't I, – I had a backup to my identity, but I didn't know what that was. And so I didn't attend. I used to hang out at the bar all the time. I used to fall asleep underneath the trees. <laughs> you know, I'd scrape through until you couldn't scrape through anymore. And, you know, in, in end of second year and start of third year. It's like hiding in the ruck, isn't it? Oh, mate. You, you Certainly some pulls out. Yeah. And, you know, and, and as soon as it got to I – was, I was reading in your book that uh, when – you know, you, you couldn't not go to the tutorials. Like that that yeah, was the yeah. bit. That's when you actually learnt how shit happens. And when I wasn't going to the tutorials, you know, all of a sudden you didn't understand any of the context or the, or the you know, project-based learning and I was fucked. Like, you know, you, <laughs> in third year I, I started failing subjects and um, then I went to the, the, uh, the count, guidance counsellor. You know, he or she gave us a sheet on to, you know, fill out, you know, all of the questions about whether or not this course is good for you. And I'm reading the things and I'm like, of course, I'm just going to answer that the course is shit for me. So, you know, I'm, I'm answering the sheet, trying to manipulate it. So I've got the worst score in the world so that, you know, he or she's like, you should bail. And so I bailed out of uni in third year. Um, first, real first time I'd quit anything substantial. And um, were you like 20, 22? Yeah. And so, you know, looking at sit, going to uni, had an identity, didn't really found it hard. I saw all the rugby boys gravitating towards one another. I didn't play rugby, you know, the cricket boys were. Um, so, you know, I just became a bit of a larrikin, which was a bit of a mask really for, you know, just hiding some own insecurities. And then, you know, in third year when I dropped out, I was always obsessed with doing lots of different jobs and trying to start businesses. And third year when I bailed, I was going to try to get into film school, but I was just getting further away from reality, like, you know, further and further away. And so I worked for a plumber worked for a chippy, worked for a landscape gardener, worked at a pub, got back to doing things that were real, like real work, just to recalibrate. Who physical they, work. Just physical work, yeah, just actually doing shit, worked for a jumping castle company, you know, lugging jumping castles to kids' parties. And after doing that for a while, and I was, I was dating a, uh, a Norwegian whose dad owned a physio clinic in Norway, I went and visited, went and visited him or her in Norway at uh, the end of that year. And he just said to me, look, uh, just get your ticket, mate. You know, you'll never forgive yourself if you don't just get your ticket. And after that, go back to doing whatever you want to do. And I took that, I took that really seriously. Like he was, he was a great guy. His name was Lars. And um, so I got, went back, re-enrolled. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. 
finished off in the next couple of years. My grades improved out of sight and I actually turned up and gave a shit. Probably a bit of maturity too. Yeah. I mean, like, where was um, your RAAF aeronautical engineer dad, like who's gone through, who's working for the, you know, for the armed services who, generally speaking, have very disciplined sort of environments around them. But what was going on there? What were they saying to you? I reckon mum and dad knew that I was smart enough to get myself out of it. They just were worried, so to speak. Mum, mum would worry about the colour of the sky. Like my mum's a you know, beautiful woman that you know will constantly keep herself awake about anything. You know, if if I'm in, uh, you know, ten dollars a debt or a hundred million dollars in debt, she'll have the same level of worry. She's always worried. Uh, but I think that they they, they probably um, they didn't wrap me in cotton wool, but they they certainly made an environment so that I could make any decision that I wanted to make, and it was just on my terms. You know, at the end of the day, they steered me in a direction when I was growing up. Um, I, I largely embraced those things and, you know, was a you know, self-motivator and self-driver of those things. But then when the wheels started falling off, you know, it was because I lived away from home, it was my narrative to them that would that they would experience. Yeah. Doing this for the best intentions, guys, you know, I've got this. And so that they kind of just let me roll with it and uh, eventually it worked out, I guess. And uh, It's sort of interesting that... Um that you could have such a, a strong dream or story about yourself when you were a young man wanting to be, you know, play rugby, let's say, for Australia and at the same time have a, a strong profession to fall back on. And, you know, as a, young, as a young man, that's a pretty big thing to have in your head. But I find it really curious that your response or your reaction would be so devo when you found that you couldn't do one of those things, for just for a young man, like to mm. think that way, to, to to feel that way, to feel so disappointed that um, so much so that you sort of self-destruct a little bit. Because for me, it wasn't a I would like to. It was that was all, it was going to have happened. It had already happened in my head. I was going to be the you know the next you know uh, Phil Kearns that was with the Wallabies. That that was what I had already done in my brain and you know i remember reading napoleon hill's book pretty soon after i dropped out of uni about uh think and grow rich this is not a but it was about cognitive dissociation where the real struggle happens like you can be a dreamer but if you're if you're not doing the actions that make your dreams come true at some point in time you've got to let go of you've got to let go of it like if your actions aren't matching up to the what the outcome you want then you're just delusional and you become, you know, separated from any sort of reality. What you hope happens when you have a dream is that your actions follow and the habits follow and, you know, eventually you, you turn the needle and you start to move in that direction. I felt like a victim that, you know, it was... It was not fair. It shouldn't have happened Yeah, fuck, it wasn't my fault. Yeah. It was my fault. I collapsed a, I collapsed a mall. That's how it happened. It was my fault. Yeah, but you didn't know the consequences. No. Yeah. But, uh, and, yeah, so I, I guess that it was a victim victimhood right and the reality of it is like like I've, I've thought about some you know tragic things that have happened my 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 mum and dad experienced the death of two um babies underneath the age two they were my older brothers justin and jason and, and my my firstborn uh, justin is named after one of them the reality of absolute horrific situation is i wouldn't be here today if those two boys didn't die, which is a horrible, horrible thought, mm. right? Like I would never be here on earth and I would never be with my current partner, Emily. Like I was separated from my ex-wife, had had a child with with her, with Justin. 
But if I didn't meet Irene, I'd never have had Justin. He's an absolutely stunning kid. It all's it's all good. And I think I've realized that it that just the victimhood is just fucking pointless. Like yeah, it's totally. It is pointless. Just today's day zero every day. Just keep going forward. So, so I mean, the takeout that you're sort of talking to our audience about here is just stop feeling sorry for yourself, get on with it. It's day zero every day. So you, you probably wasted a couple of years of your life fucking around, you know. It was good it, fun. Yeah. But, but you, it's wasted but not yeah. wasted sort of yeah. thing. I mean, you got a good experience from it and it, it does form part of your story now of who you are. Yep. But old Lars, um, he gave you a good steer, didn't he? It's a good steer, yeah. I mean, like how important do you think that? That conversation, if I didn't have that conversation with Yeah, you, where do you think you'd be? Probably running a pub. Mm. That's that like probably running a pub. Yeah. I was working at the DY Hotel for a while and went over to, to Norway to visit him and uh, I would be running pubs. Yeah, so it's funny how, how things happen to us, but Lars just tipped you into He tipped you into something smart. Like he, he used his experience just to give you one piece of advice. Because you and, rarely listen to mum and dad sometimes. Well, that's that's, that's <laughs> right. It's it, Unfortunately, that is the case. Um, but Lars just tipped you into one thing, and as a result, that you ended up going off, going get your finishing off your physiotherapy. So, did you practice? I did. Yeah. Did you and go into it like a physiotherapy yeah. practice? Went into a physiotherapy practice. Uh, I jumped around a little bit uh, initially. Doing sports, sportsman or ish. Yeah, yeah, straight off, straight off the bat, I was in a clinic that had a particular niche, and that niche didn't really, you know, agree with where I wanted to go. Then I got into a more traditional sports practice. Uh, with a, actually a mentor of mine, Paul Wright, um, was there for nearly two years. And I have got an issue with control that I do like being the, the, the controller of my own future and how things roll. And so working for someone else just wasn't going to be a thing that was part of my initial journey. Um, and so I actually I, I bailed on working for someone else and set up pretty early, you know, two years out, which I would never recommend that to someone as a general rule. So in your own practice, yeah. And within two years, it's just, it's pretty dumb. Yeah, like yeah. it's a pretty dumb thing to do. Wow. Generally, there's outliers on the bell curve, but yeah. if I was going to give everybody the, the advice, you know, the vast majority of people, it's a stupid idea. Like it's probably going to not work out. Your skills won't develop. You know, you won't be surrounded by people that are going to help you become a truly excellent therapist. You'll, you'll be too busy dealing with your own patients that you won't understand how to get business going. Like there's so many th- reasons why it would be, a crap idea. So how long did you work for yourself in practice? For myself, two thousand and end of 2006, I did that and uh, I got off the tools, I'm going to say, six years ago. So, you know, I was, I was working 10 years as a, as a treating practitioner. So do you remember the moment when you decided that Physio Inc. was the answer? I mean, what happened? Irene and I were visiting her parents at Orchard Hills. Uh, out near Penrith and we went in to get some groceries from Woolies down in Glenmore Park Shops and effectively we came out with a lease signed. A what? A, <laughs> a lease? lease. Yeah, effect, for what? For a, a room in a medical centre. <laughs> that, like, that was it. I was feeling a bit trapped. I was like, ah, you know, I kind of want to do this myself and we went in, saw the medical centre, saw Dr. Agabe and and, uh, and and Dr. Morian. I'm like, got any rooms? Yeah, we do. Hey, hey, hey. Tell, tell, tell me, I'm confused. You went to Woolworths to get some stuff yeah. to go and see her parents or your parents. Yep. And then um, you saw a, a medical centre. Yep. And what happened? Just walked into the medical centre, spoke to the- uh, What were you doing? What was your day job then? Working for Paul Wright as a physio in, in St. Leonard's, yeah. Yep. And then you, and you, and you, 
But uh, how did you, did you catch the Blake's eyes on me? I mean, like at, at the it, Glenmore it, Park. It, it was literally Irene's great. That's, yeah. that's my ex-wife, and uh, and she's still fifty-fifty owners in our business mm-hmm. to this day. Like it's it's an unusual setup, but we've um, proved everyone wrong, and it's worked well. Um, uh, I knew that, you know, in 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 that culture, they they liked children to be close to home. You know, to a degree. You know, living in Alexandria is not going to cut the mustard when when folks live in in Penrith, right? Mm. So I thought, you know, if if we're going to set up a business, it's likely to be Western Sydney. Well, what I, was her thing? Was that was she, she was she was working at a, a physio clinic in Western Sydney at the time right, as well. Right. Yeah, um, is she a physio or she was? She's a physio. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so we shifted. Uh, we went down into Glenmore Park shops and large medical centre. I thought, look, I just need to get my foot in somewhere. Went and talked to the practice manager, sat down with, you know, Dr. Gabe and Dr. Maureen. And literally they're like, look, Peter or Paul had just shifted out, which was the previous physio here. Space is yours we if need you want it. Yeah, space is yours if you want it for 400 bucks a week. That sounds good. <laughs> and it was that impulsive. Like the, it, it, I'll figure the rest out. You know, I know that I'm an intelligent bloke. I'll, I'll figure the rest out. Uh, you know, bought a desk, bought a bed, didn't keep any accounts for like five months, you know, just putting things through the FPOS terminal for five months. I'll figure it out later, you know, and then dumped all the FPOS receipts. And did, you, did, did Irene work there as well with you? No, at that time she still worked for, for the same clinic that she was in because, you know, just that building phase, you, you, you're paying rent, you, you're paying your accountant, you haven't paid your lawyer. You, you, Some stability. Not not much money's going into your pocket for, yeah, a, period, yeah. for a period of time. And... I started getting more popular because because I was in the one room and I was a very hands-on therapist, meaning, you know, I didn't use two machines and ice. There's an old, there's a funny old saying in physio, you know, steer clear of the two two machines and ice clinics that put the fancy lights on you and pop some ice on you and go and see somebody else. You know, yeah. that, that, that was a thing back in the 80s and, and 90s and hopefully it's not now. But shifting into that area, I was just obsessed with getting my hands on people because I knew that I needed to get the tactile, you know, uh, feedback in order to be any good because I didn't have any more mentors at that stage. And so I just put my hands on every single client, did as many sorts of techniques as that I could learn off in the books. YouTube, physios weren't a thing back then, you know, like it was a pretty lonely existence trying to self-educate. And I went and did courses and whatnot and uh, I became popular because I ran on time, gave them full 30 minutes and put my hands on them. People were like, wow, you're like massaging me and stuff. That's amazing, man. And I was like, well, that, doesn't everybody do this? Like, isn't that what they do? So it got quite popular. We ended up buying the the practice that Irene was working at and that was in a place in a place called St. Clair. And then within, you know, 12 months of doing that, we bought a house in Glenmore Park and relocated the practice into the house, gutted it, turned turned it into beds and stuff. And that was kind of how we started, yeah. And And, and then... The biggest sort of side of this is Physio Inc. I mean, which is not just a physio business. So, when when did the idea of sort of expanding yourself and yeah. turning yourself into something totally different? Yeah. When did that happen? I mean, where, where were you? So, so from the outset, you know, I and is, is Irene still involved? Yeah, so yeah, so she's still on. Like when I say on the tools, on the management tools, she's one of our you know very senior managers at the business. Uh, you know, as, as I said, fifty fifty owner. We've got a, a more mature structure than what we have ever got now. So we've got, you know, a traditional executive of a chief development officer, chief operations and uh, chief financial officer involved now. Uh, we have in our group, we're, we're mixed between a franchise part of the business, which 
had I known how difficult that is to like mate, do a franchise, you scale up real quick. It's bloody hard. Mm, totally, <laughs> it's bloody hard work. You know, and 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 you're taking a very small yeah. percent of yeah it's not the effort. Worth it. Fuck, the effort's hard. The effort's hard. Um, but do lots of them. Yeah, and then the and then the other side of it is is mobile. Um, the, the mobile meaning in home. We go. go we go to the customer. Yep. Mobile is is very very difficult to pull off. Well, uh, staff members can be isolated. You need large geographical areas initially. It takes a long time to to leverage to to confine your staff members into one smaller area that becomes economically viable. Like that was a real pain in the ass early on. But we are there now. Um, so in our group, we've got around 300 employees, about 200 direct employed, 100 underneath the franchise business. It's a more mature structure. But we grew that way from building our clinics to begin with. We initially vertically integrated all of our practices. We, we brought in massage, acupuncture, podiatry, you know, everything. And then we realized, well, shit, everything. And we should just, <laughs> we should just stick to one thing in the clinics, in the bricks and mortar practice, because... If you have one physio, one pod, one ma- massage therapist, they don't have mentors around them to help them grow. So we were like, oh, look, let's go back to what we know really, really well with our bricks and mortar practices. Physio and bricks and mortar practices have three to six of them in each, each clinic. They can teach each other how to grow. Often, you know, there's this obsession with offering heaps of different products. Sometimes offering one product mm. really well is, is the best thing you can do, right? So we did that with our bricks and mortar practices and then franchised them, um, franchised our best ones. Um, we kind of left ourselves with the less uh, performing ones to, to sh- demonstrate that we were able to turn it around with our own system. We're going to go to the break. When I come back, I want to talk about your product. I want to talk about how you distribute it and why that, that we did talk, we touched on the, the decision of franchising. Um, we also t- touched on what your product suite was and how you've expanded and you contracted it and you may well have expanded it again since. Um, and that's all a timing thing. And I want to talk about how you market your business and I want to talk about the importance. You said you had 200 people with you. I want to talk about the importance of the, the investment in the human capital around you, um, particularly in a business like yours. Um, and I want to talk flippantly about this whole concept of uh, what a physio offers you today. I mean, I have experienced the, uh, the uh, different coloured lights and the, and the ice and uh, and there's nothing more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Aggravating to me than that. Um, you know, I feel like I'm in a snake oil situation, you know, <laughs> and you're paying for it. And I know it does fuck all for me. 
I can put my own arm in ice, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, like, like you get tennis elbow, you, I can put my arm out, I can put it on ice myself. I, I want someone actually to rub it out or whatever the case may be. Because yeah. it, it's a tactile thing, physiotherapy. Mm. Yeah. That's what's called physiotherapy for, yeah. I guess. Um, so we go to the break, we come straight back. Jonathan Moody, and Jonathan's the founder and CEO of a business called Physio Inc., which is obviously a physiotherapy business, but it's more than that. And I want to talk to him. We've been talking about sort of how he got into it. Um, it was a, I wouldn't say a rocky road. It was a road with many turns, though. And he was he's still in that business with his former wife, and that's pretty unusual. That's pretty rare, actually. So that in itself is a feat from my point of view. Um, I was never successful at doing anything like that. You have decided in order to get scale to distribute your product, we'll come, we're going to park what your product is, come back to it in a moment, but how did you make the decision to distribute your product? Um, so some people might say, let's do it online. Other people might just say, I just want to have one little shop at Glenmore Park and you come and see me. Other people might say, I'm going to do a mobile one or I go and see you. Other people say, I'm going to do franchise. You had a little bit of everything. Tell me the decision-making process, and where did you land Yeah, ultimately? So why we went to franchising as the first, because we, we went to franchising at a similar time that we started to do in-home care as well. And because we hadn't nailed the the, the offering of in-home care. In-home care, just give me a... So, so we would have our therapists yeah. drive to people's right. houses. A mobile. Mobile. Mobile yeah. service. Yeah. 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 Because we hadn't nailed that, we hadn't made that financial... Difficult to go and convince somebody else to buy into that, right? So yep. we so we maintained that being our own service offering, and franchised our clinics. The re the fundamental reason why we did it when I looked at what I wanted my vision to be, I I have a fair chip on my shoulder about I'm a why not person, right? Like somebody will ask me why are you doing it that way? It's like mate, why not? Like mm. let, let's let's try something different. And I have I had a chip on my shoulder about the industry because of the two machines and ice thing. Um, you know, I, I could count on, I'd have to take my shoes off to, to, to count the amount of high profile clinics that were two machines and ice when I got out of uni, like it killed me. And so I wanted to have, try to have influence on how we did things. So I wanted to get to scale to get that influence. But I realized that that's not 10 clinics, like that's a hundred, you know, like 10 clinics is not going to get me the influence to be able to impact the university structure, um, just, just for, for you know, the, the listeners, university really disappointed me. Um, I wanted to go there to have my brain expanded, but I was taught to swim in a very tight lane. Mm. I went and did science though, right? Like, you know, and so I remember my last two years, like all, all, all I would do is memorize the textbooks and I got great, great marks. I'm like, fuck, that's, like, that's not hard to do. Memorizing textbooks isn't expanding your brain. It's like really teaching you to be a you know, convergent thinker, like getting really in the lanes. And so I had a chip on my shoulder that we need to, you know, chiropractic's been around for 3,000 years and have we really nailed what works and what doesn't work? And why are we, with our evidence-based medicine, why are we saying that the psychology of the person should be removed? Why are we saying that the social impact of the person should be removed when looking at a scientific study? And so I wanted to start to push all that shit back into the, to the evidence-based studies and say it's really important what social background the patient comes from it's really important you know what their culture is it's really all of those things impact on their recovery speed on their commitment to rehab so why are we removing it 
In order to get that influence, I need to get scale. Let's build a network of clinics. Fuck. I'm still really small, so I needed to, to franchise it. I had falsely assumed that you, you franchise, you know that your model is the best model and that everybody, you know, you just open the door and they'll all come, run, <laughs> come piling in. Wow, it's hard. Did you sell the franchises? That, yeah, we yeah. did. And we sold them internally, sold them to staff members that had been working for us right. to try to maintain the culture, and that was a very And what was thing. the franchise? What did you sell? Did you sell them a postcode or? So, yeah, so we look, each one, depending on how many people live in their area, will get a, an exclusive area um, from which. So it's based on numbers? Based on numbers. So, like, I'll give you an area of 40,000 people. Like that. And that'll be five postcodes or whatever it is. Yep. Um, and exclusivity. Exclusivity inside that area. Inside that area, yeah. and is it a bricks and mortar? Bricks and mortar. Model. So that they they have a, they open up a shop somewhere. Yep. Um, to service the area. Yep. And um, and then you take a royalty, or originally we took a royalty. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, clip everything that they yeah. made. Yep. And that was effectively limitless. Which did you did you source the customer? Did you find the customer for them, the client? Uh, so we we run their websites. Yep. Um, we help them. So. We give them all of the inf digital infrastructure that they need to be able to get a certain amount of customers. Um, the other half of the equation is face-to-face -face marketing, which is really important inside communities. We give them the infrastructure and the collateral and the plan and, you know, it's a seasonal plan. Yeah. You know, this month go and do this, this month go and do that, yep. here's your brochures, et cetera. So we give them all of the, the, the marketing support. We also give them a learning management system. One of the hardest things about running an allied health or any service business is training. Um, you know, it's, it's, you mean PD to professional development, professional development, but human development, you know, like at the statistics that we run, it's, it's not as important how well trained they are in physio. It's how important, how good they are as a human Yeah, with people. And it's really hard to unpack somebody that says, but I'm a really good therapist and I'm telling the patient what they need and they'll never come. And why aren't they coming back? They're not coming back because you're a bit of a, you know, they don't like you. you're not listening, mate. You're not mm. listening to what they need. So all of our learning management is all geared towards making them better at dealing with human beings. And so we license all of that, you know, IP with yep. the, the stuff to, to them. There's a business management system that runs with it. Um, and it works well. It works well. But I realized that, you know, uh, I've got to add more value and charge them less in order to really get to scale. Because I, I thought I was charging, you know, a low enough amount. But the market's telling me, oh, mate, 5% is a lot. I'm like, fuck, I'm running at a loss with my franchise business, mm. champ, and you're telling me this is a lot. Which like, means you can either do one or two things, either you can charge more or get more correct. or do more. Or do more. more. Yeah. So so we started to try to add more, yep. you know, to them. At the same time, I was like, look, if they hit a certain size of their business, I'm going to stop charging royalties as well and just cap it. So we went to a we – we've just recently pivoted to a cap system where they get charged royalties up to a particular cap on a monthly basis, which means if you go crazy – and you have absolutely nailed it. You've got the upside. Yeah, you, you're you're the franchisee. Yeah, yeah. So so we've we've kind of uh, and and we've re removed all exit fees actually. Um, so they can leave. If they want if they want to terminate, you mean? They want to terminate. They yeah. go on their merry way. The reason why I did that was I wanted to hold our staff really accountable to making sure that they provide them the best service that they possibly you're can. You're talking about your 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 franchise manager. Correct. Yeah, like they've they've got to be servants to these guys. Yeah, you know, and and want. And provide so much value that the franchisees want to stay in. So, someone who's listening is talking about thinking about franchising. Doesn't matter what it is, but um, what are some of the pitfalls that you learn about franchise? I mean, what are the, some of the difficulties? Because there's no point just. I mean, I've had some experience with. There's no point just sending out a franchise manager for this area for these twenty franchisees, and um, 
going just glad hand them say, hey, you going, Jonathan, let's have a cup of tea. You've got to actually add value. Yeah. Otherwise, get out of my office and <laughs> you waste some time. Yeah. Uh, so time's so valuable, right? So you're, you're, what, what could you share with our listeners about franchising? Because it is a tough gig. You've kind of got to, like, we ended up being effectively being part of their mentor group. You know, as the franchisor, we are meant to be the ones that understand the model. We're meant to be the ones that understand the human interaction elements. So hold their hand and be like a business coach, be a, you know, life coach for them and for their staff and really set goals on each of those and and get them to hold themselves accountable to those goals. Um, So the value that you've immediately doubled your value, you know, like coaches can cost two to $3,000 a month. Um, If you can provide that infrastructure at the same time as, having the compliance looked after, all of a sudden it's not them feeling as though they're being checked on every month. It's that you're helping them grow. That's an important thing. That, that's a very important thing you just said. You can't have the franchise manager being someone who's going, so we haven't hit your numbers. Yeah. Or it can't be, I'm, checking, working I'm, with I'm not there to check up on you. Yeah. I'm there to help you. Yeah. And about whatever it is you want to talk yeah. about. That, that's an important point. And How many do you have now, for example, right now? We've got 14 clinics at the moment. So 14 clinics. Yeah. And I'm the one thing that seems to be uniform is the ones that want to serve their staff, you know, that, that put all the bullshit aside. They're the ones that want to serve their staff the most, seem to be the most successful. The best proprietors of your franchisees yeah. are the ones who want to look after their staff members. Yeah. Yeah. Not, what about their customers? Um, so when you look, their customer in physio land, the owner of the business's customer is the employees because they're bloody hard to get. Because yeah, it's hard to employ people. They're bloody hard to get. It's not that it's hard to get a good one. It's hard to get any. Yeah. <laughs> like they're just, they're, they're hands these, these are, well, I mean, I don't want to university put a bad University-trained physiotherapists. Right, physiotherapists, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And then again, we're talking about the bricks and mortar. It, it's even worse with speech pathology, occupational therapy, you know, the, the professions that we have in our mobile business, it's even worse. They're, they're as rare as you get. So it's about looking at, for us, we look at the different layers of who the customers are. If you're a business owner and your major driver of business is your physios, there you, you've got to keep your customers super happy. If they're super happy, then they'll keep 60 customers each happy every week. Right. Yeah. Um, the getting customers in the door is actually not very difficult. It's making sure that the that the frontline staff members are super well supported, they, they're trained well, um, and that they align with our house rules. Um, our house rules are employees first, which is like, you know, customers first. Our second one is uh, referrers are treated like royalty and that customers deserve an incredible experience. Um, it's no promise of improvement. It's no promise of outcome, but you're going to have a really good experience. And, you know, talking about two machines and us, it's a crap experience. No, it's you. You feel you feel violated. Mm. You're about passing your card over, and you're like, "So, Mark, I'll see you Thursday. Oh, I'll probably I'll book it in. I'll cancel via text message in 20 minutes, champ. That's how it's. <laughs> that's what's going to happen here, you know. And and so it's the ones that value their, their staff the most are the most successful. It's funny. Um, we are talking about Fizzowing's distribution policy and the way you distribute your product and your service. Um which is through one of the ways you've decided to do is through franchising. Can we just talk about your product, service product, interchangeable, yeah. but you just mentioned speech therapy and other things. Um, 
what does your product suite look like now? And when do you expand your product suite? When do you contract it? It's a, it's a great question because I was talking before about how I contracted it and stuck to in bricks and mortar clinics sticking to physio. Unless you can have five or six uh, service professionals, and again, I, you know, I'm in the service game where it's you're needing to keep a certain level of expertise up in order to stay relevant, in order to stay hungry and, you know, to be well-educated. Unless you have four to six that can come together in a group, you're really struggling to, to get excellence because the one person, let's say they're an acupuncturist, um, you know, and, and we do still have acupuncturists in our group, they're isolated. And if they have a really difficult client they can't get any progress with, you know, they look around, there's no one to help them. They can't ask a physio how to do better acupuncture. And so you don't have that, you know. You collaboration. Know, you don't have it. So then moving on to the mobile as part of our business, we have experienced time and time again, as soon as we get critical mass with four or five professionals that can come together and collaborate in an area, we're off to the races. It's it's wonderful. So, you know, that, that critical mass with those service, industry, those service um, arms, uh, for us, it was really difficult. The first one we did, which was occupational therapy, yeah, physio, I think you're a physio company. You know, are you going to change your name? It's like, look, the name doesn't matter to the end customer. To be honest, it just doesn't. The way that we market, does it, the customer doesn't give a shit. They land on a landing page, they look at the information, and they're like, this is who I want to go and see, and they book in. It matters more to the employees feeling as though they're working for a physio company as an OT or a speech. Uh, that, that, that's been one of the things we've found. Um, but now our, our culture and brand is, is becoming so um, organic and, and really visceral that even the staff members that are OTs or speeches kind of are like, yeah, I think I get it. You know, this is a, a feeling and a movement. It's not just a, a it's, it's not a mask. You know, yeah. It's something that's really organic. I could change our name to anything and it won't really change it. Yeah, well, over time. I mean, and, and, but it was, so your products include, when you work there out, shit, it's, there's demand for a speech therapist yeah. in this area. So in the clinics, because they're connected to their local community and they're taught how to really stay connected to their local communities, the franchisees, they really drive what products that they need to provide. And right, it's, so it's, you leave it to them. Leave it to them. They are limited to allied health, right? You know, which is no limitation yeah. you know, effectively. In terms of the mobile, we advertise broadly through content-based marketing. Um, when we start getting enough queries in a particular area, we'll try to mobilise a workforce to get into that area. And it's, it's, it's frustrating because you're kind of pissing people off for a little while because you don't know where there's not demand and they're coming and saying, well, look, you're saying that you're nationwide. Oh, yeah. Serve me. It's like, yes, like we will get there. And we're trying to use telehealth as a, as a stopgap measure. Uh, telehealth's got a long way to go uh, for widespread exception. physiotherapy. Hard. <laughs> it's hard. You know, so, you know, for physio and OT and speech is with, with anything that you're trying to develop a relationship with the person. Yeah. Off, like one of the interesting things about telehealth is you can do more things sometimes on, on a telehealth screen um, that you can't do face-to-face. -face. Like, you know, if you're working with a child with autism spectrum disorder, you can just say, hold on, you know, Patrick, and you jump off screen, you come back and you dress as Superman. You know, and, and so you can interact in a way that you just can't interact with when you're face-to-face. -face. You know, you can use filters and, you know, funny face filters and stuff on the camera, which can improve the experience for certain groups. So your product suite, I guess what you're saying is, though, is that in terms of the marketing of your products or your marketing your content, you're sort of backfilling. You're sort of saying, okay, well, there is demand there, um, which makes sense for me to 
have one of my franchises or a mobile service start to push into that area. Right. Then you have the issues of recruiting the right people and fucking that and then, up. And, and then getting to that critical mass yeah, yeah. of them feeling supported. Yeah, and, and trying to make a dollar out of it as well, So, which is pretty hard. Um, so, and I, I guess, you know, what are we saying? This is not for the faint-hearted, for those people listening. I mean, health services are incredibly in demand, really important today, but it's hard to make, hard to do a startup and build a business around it. You've got to be patient and you just got to do one step after the other and sometimes you're going to go back three or four steps and then you're backfilling all the time too, both in terms of your distribution, how you distribute, um, the different modes of distribution. Sometimes people might criticise you say, well, they make your fucking mind up. Um, are you going to be a franchise? Are you going to be a mobile? Are you going to be both? Are you going to be some percentage of both? Well, Kerry Pag once said to me, he said, just do everything and work out where it all lands. The market tells you. Someone else will tell you, you won't work it out ever. And what, one, of the, one of the things that, that we're pretty obsessed with is in a growing business, our retention rate is, is landing on a yearly basis somewhere between 5 and 8% turnover, which is pretty good for a health services business. Um, you know, meaning that... I mean, if it's 100%, it means everyone's always sick, so that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And... and uh, well, you didn't fix them in the first place. <laughs> it's, it's actually a lot easier to scale if you don't give a shit about staff turnover. Mm. Like, it's, it's quite easy to scale. If you don't care about that critical mass of having them supported and producing a quality outcome, we could really go. However, we measure, you know, net promoter <laughs> scores of our customers religiously. We make sure that our referrers are, you know, receiving the best quality care. As part of that, we need to only scale in accordance to quality. And that, that and it, it's not just lip service. Like it's, we're doing it and that's why we have such low turnover. Yeah, scale and quality. I think that's in your game. Scale and quality is really important. Yeah, you're not selling um, widgets. I mean, it's where our model's going to go mm. is that our front of house is going to be like a project manager of your health, mm. and when you arrive there, they'll be able to ask you a bunch of different questions, and whether or not we treat them in house, or we say mm, your sports doctor that doesn't exist yet is going to be, you know, Adam or Mary, whoever mm. it is. And we want our front of house to be connecting them to, you know, be like so a marketplace. Yeah. You're, you're building a marketplace because at some point going to my GP, he doesn't understand uh, injury. Mm. I mean, he's a doctor. He's a general practitioner. Ph- physios tend to be a pretty good first place on, on physical health. What you're saying is present a marketplace. Yeah. It could start online. Yeah. I mean, and where you match people, particularly on their, and it, this is a lifetime thing. So <laughs> people could be shooting nurse from a, from 30, because we start to need these these things from 30 on. Yep. Right, and it never stops. In fact, we need more later it, on. It, it's, it's another one of those things that, that bugs me about the industry of physio. There's, there's this self-management mantra that physios are misunderstanding. It's not about a patient coming to you and you're giving them some exercises and telling them how to ice their elbow and they're disappearing. Self-management is more about the person being involved in their own care, not necessarily having to do it themselves all the time. And the best physio, so we have a, a, a metric called client visit average. It's how many initial patients come into your office for how many repeat patients you have. Yeah, because I'm the worst. I'm, I'm the worst at physio. Yeah. I, I won't come back. That's right. Yeah. I think, oh, yeah. fuck, that didn't do anything. Correct. And so, so my, my client visit average, and, and the listeners will like think that I just never fix anybody, but was 100 by the time I finished treating. Meaning, if you rang me, though, I would come back. Correct. Simple. Yeah, yeah. And, don't and, send me on them fucking texts. 
Oh, remind you, a text reminder there's an appointment tomorrow? Yes. Send that, that's fine. But if yeah. I don't reply to it and say I'm and Give confirm, you a buzz. Ring me up and say, Mark, mate, or somebody. I'm going, to, I'm going to take that back to Jill who looks after that stuff. That, that's important. That's, that's good stuff. Because, like, because, you know, often I get those texts mm. and um, I, I haven't had an injury for a while, but, like, I would get those texts. Oh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, I've got something else I've got to do. I've got to change my appointments, my time around. But if someone rang me, I'm, I'm, going, I'm not going to get out of it. And Mark, look, I'm I'm a physio that that runs a physiotherapy business and other allied health, and I'm into ultra ultra running these days. So it was after my my void of of rugby, I eventually got into marathon running, and I, I kind of like flagellating at the moment. I, I just want to hurt myself as much as possible. I'm heading down to Tassie for a hundred. Be careful, run. doctor, I'm, heal thyself. I know, and I don't ever ever do my own shit. Mm. It's funny. Like well, as I was saying, the cobbler's son wears the worst shoes in the street. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, like, you, you got to be careful of that sort of stuff. So, cause, so cause we're all we're all we're all victims to it. But if someone um, rang you and said, "Hey, Jonathan, mate, get in here. I know that you've just finished a hundred kilometre yeah. super marathon. I'll see you Tuesday. Come in. Yeah, and you'll say, okay. That's, most and of that, us and that's like where that. it's at. It's about managing people. Yeah, and and. Our best therapists are the ones that manage them. They say they don't say, "Mark, when would you like to come no, no, back?" Because no. Mark doesn't know no. that. No, he's got no. Don't give I'll me. I'll tell a you choice. when I'd like to come back. Never, champ. Yeah. It's not a, yeah. Like it's uncomfortable. You put me through pain. You stick needles in me. Yeah. Why would I want to do that? Uh, it's Mark. I'm seeing you tomorrow, or I'm seeing you Wednesday. I need to see you next this week. Yeah. Like you, you need you need like when you're paying someone to to help you with your health. You need to know that they're confident enough to know what's best for you. And they take control. And they take control. They've got to take control. It's really important. Yeah, so the marketplace I think is a good idea because not everyone can get access to the people they need to see, but they, more importantly they don't know who they need to see anyway. Um, that's really cool. I think um, active relationships is really important. Yeah. I like that idea yeah. of being active, actively yeah. actively managing my relationship with you as yeah. my physiotherapist. I don't care what you are. I don't care which part of the – Medical, what do you call, what do you call it, allied health part? Which part you fit within? As long as you fit within it, and you're actually there managing it for me, yeah, your and, businesses. And you know, the, the project management approach, I think, is going to be where the future is. Um, and I don't know what if it'll have a title or if just all allied health can do it. But if we can train them to be good project management, like in my career, I saw uh, three of my clients. I referred them back to their GPs because. Their neck pain was unusual. They all they all ended up having um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and physios sometimes can feel that things are off physically, right? Mm. And so, I ended up being a referral network. People would come to me. Often, I wouldn't even touch them. You know, it would be this looks like this, and and off they go. And that's not unusual in the physio world, but we do become so obsessed with not letting patients have regular touch points with us because of this self management. Not, like I think it's nonsense. We need people to be coming back for their ten thousand kilometer checks. You know, like mm. come back, have a chat yeah, with your car. Yeah, like you, we, we, we do, do it very willingly. I, I think we forget about how our bodies wear out too, or how our bodies need to be. It's not just enough to do exercise. It's not just enough to eat well. It's not just enough to sleep well. Your bodies wear out irrespective. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the miles we do, yeah. RDL, it's amazing. And uh, we need someone, a mechanic, to come and have a look every now and then, yeah. and, and and regularly. Yeah. I mean, uh, as I said, everyone's got to remember this. You know, the cobbler's son wears the worst shoes in the street. All mm-hmm. of us are cobblers, and none of us look after ourselves. Yeah. Um, yet we're all out there, very happy to give everyone else advice and tell them how to look after themselves. And, w- and one of the biggest pieces of advice I give people is that 
uh, use the insanity principle when you're going to see anybody. If it hasn't worked, go harder mm. or change course. Drive mad. Yeah. You're like, go harder or change course. You either, if you're at a physio clinic and, and they're not getting you any better, if you're working with a speech pathologist and they're not improving the outcome, change course or double down on it. Do twice as many of it, you know, like change one of the variables. Cause just don't do nothing. Just don't do nothing. And just don't do the same shit that you were doing that wasn't doing anything. And I think that with business, that's that's fucking really important. Well, it, it's been a very interesting conversation with you, Jonathan. I, mean, I always give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question. If you've got a question you want to ask me. Yes. I'm fascinated by the way that rents are going in this country. Commercial rents, you do it, Commercial rents, yeah. And with rents going up all the time, and it doesn't seem to be our, our product cost for service is improving at the same rate for a square metre basis. A bit like our wages. When, when are we going to run into that point now? Where, yeah. I, I think uh, COVID has actually introduced us to, to that a little bit. Um, I think the, the, the big issue... The big issue is that commercial let's, – let's take ourselves out of shopping centres and just look, talk about strip shops, you know, like, like along a road. The big issue is that, is that the commercial building owners, most of them got debt. So they have debt with the bank and the bank usually has a covenant on the property that um, every two years they get an evaluation, and which means if, – and if the valuation doesn't come up to the valuation, they can ask for the – which means the percentage of – borrowing against the valuation goes above, say, 60%, yep. the bank can ask you to tip some dough in. Yep. It's a big problem for land, land yep. landlords. It's a big problem for the banks too, I guess. And the way the valuations are done, the valuation industry is done by valuers. They're going to be saying this, but um, they, they what they do is they take the passing yield and they multiply by a risk factor. So they might say the return in Darlinghurst in Sydney needs to be because of the risk associated with Darlinghurst um, needs to be 4% per annum, for argument's sake, which means yeah. you get a multiplication factor of 25, which means you multiply the passing rent by 25, that gives you the valuation. It's, it's formulaic. Yep. There's no nothing subjective about it. Mm. It's just objective and it's um, mathematically based and it's extraordinarily formulaic. So therefore the landlords can never afford to reduce the rent. The landlord's better off saying, see you later if you want to continue paying the rent and hanging out and not putting anyone in there yep. than, and losing six months' rent than they are of doing a new lease with a lower rent because the moment they do that, that kicks, that usually will kick in because the moment I sign you as a new tenant, I have to go back to the bank and get the bank to approve you as a tenant. That's usually covenant as well. Yep. And the bank says you're paying less rent than it's in the valuation. Yep. And then they, they say, well, we need another new valuation, which means the landlord's got to tip dough in. So landlords are resisting like crazy renegotiating commercial rents. No, I'm not talking about big shops, I'm talking about just generally smaller places. Yeah. Um, so, but I think we're at a breaking point now. It feels like that. No, we are. We're yeah. definitely at a breaking point because you know, I can just say I, I own a bit of commercial property and up in Darlinghurst where once upon a time – it was 100% occupied with tenants, you know, retail tenants, various other professionals, real estate agents, various other things. In a strip of 15 shops, there's seven empty and they've mm. been empty now for about 18 months. Mm. And um, someone's, sooner or later, someone's going to say, fuck this, I'm not hanging out anymore. I'll take whoever I can get mm. <laughs> for any amount of rent mm. and just put them in there and I'll buy the bullet. 
Yep. As soon as that happens, then the whole sort of deck of cards comes down. Yep. And and I think COVID actually brought this on even more. Mm. It sort of exacerbated the issue for landlords. It's like the small offices that didn't need to be there, they can work from home. And Yep. Yeah. People say we don't need an office anymore. Yep. I'm not going to pay 700 bucks a week rent. I can yep. operate from home. And councils don't help it. Um, in particular, the city council doesn't help it because one way you could fix this is rezone these things mm. and say um, you can turn all this into residential mm. and the landlord could go and pull a fucking thing down and build a block of apartments or something or yeah. team up a club with three or four others and build a block of apartments. But councils won't do that. Um, they don't They don't want this change in the demo, demographics of the area because that's who votes them in. Mm. So um, so that that actually helps the cause of the incoming tenants because landlords are, are trapped largely. So I think there is a change coming. So, yeah, so uh, the silver lining is that the squeeze is probably going to not, you know, might not burst but it will exhale somewhat and uh, the pressure will come off. Cause I, I think so. You know, I've seen our rent to revenue ratios, you know, that's how we analyse everything. You know, what revenue can we get out and what's the rent? And it's really hard finding spots that stack up these days. Um, You'll probably find, I, I, don't, I think you're going to find though that there's going to be a, a structural change. There is a structural change happening, but the structural change will be in that, like, let's say I, I previously was in Darlinghurst, but I, I'm, I'm refusing to pay, um, you know, 500 bucks a square metre, but I now know I can go out to uh, Regent's Park and pay 300 bucks a square metre. I'll start putting a bit of pressure on the rents in Regent Park, though, upwards, yep. because Mark will be moving his business to Regent's Park. What's going to happen is the expensive stuff will suffer first. Yep. And then it'll eventually trickle down. But what I think, I, what I am seeing, what I've heard too, is that like, for example, I'm in the city and, you know, I'm, I won't say what I'm paying, but I pay like more than a thousand bucks a square meter for one of my, one of, one of my businesses. And we've got a couple of thousand square meters. Um, and we recently thought what we do is we'll go to Surrey Hills because we might be able to get cheaper. But everyone had already gone there, yeah. beat me to it. And Surrey Hills prices weren't, too much cheaper than the city prices, mm. but they were cheaper. But everything that was available was gone. So Surrey Hills became, or that area, Surrey Hills Central for office space became quite expensive for big office space. I'm talking about quite expensive, relatively speaking. But city prices have come right off. Mm. I ended up re- renegotiating an unbelievable deal for myself, for our for our premises. We we reduced our space. We we got you know it's much much cheaper than we were paying. So that phenomenon I just explained to you is actually happening but it hasn't happened at Surrey Hills yet. It's mm. got to trickle through, right through. So kind of like what happens at, at, at a lot more alarming speed of residential, you yeah. know, like, gee, it's expensive outside of Sydney now to buy a house. Like you go to the Central Coast and you're paying a million bucks for a house now. It's, it's Correct. crazy. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't, it nearly doesn't even get you a house um, yeah. in Central Coast. So I think, so the people who went from the city to Surrey Hills, so the people who ordinarily would go to Surrey Hills saying, fuck, it's too expensive, we're going to have to go to Redford. Yeah. And the people who are going to Redford, they're going to say, fuck, it's too expensive. We're going to have to go to blah. And it's just going to keep moving out. And But the rents should scale back. Yep. But it's going to just take time. Yeah, makes sense. But, but, it's, but I think we are in a price, commercial price rest- rental restructure right now. 100% in the city. For sure it's happening in the city. Yep. And it'll trickle out. But initially the top, most expensive place in terms of current rents is going to get cheaper and it's getting cheaper. So... They'll all become, relatively speaking, cheaper as the demand drops off. It's just going to keep dropping off. But you don't want to be the one. You don't think that you're going to get good deals in, um, if they're coming out of the city, you don't think you're going to get good deals like I thought, like in Redfin, like just because I got a shock. Okay. And there was nothing available. 
Yeah. There's not that much infrastructure. There, there. there does seem to be a, a big change in the, you know, I remember a few years ago you'd sign five-year leases and you, it was really hard to negotiate anything but a 5% per year increase, like, you know, some years ago. Yeah. But that seems to be unheard of these days. Yeah, well, which is, well inflation doesn't really exist like that anymore, unless you're in one of those big shopping centres, Westfield, et cetera. But you go through those shopping centres, they're dead, there's no one there. Yeah. And I think they'd be struggling. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks awesome. for having me.